0: Property investors as a group are often painted in an unsympathetic light by the media and blamed for housing unaffordability. Yet the important role that we play in the economy is often understated. We're largely left out of consultation when it comes to policy formation, but used as pawns by politicians, particularly when they need a tax grab. What threats are on the horizon for property investors and what can be done about them? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyers agent, co-host of Fox Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready.
1: And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional.
0: Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au We're joined today by the Chair of Pica the property investors council of australia ben kingsley ben is also the founder of advisory business in power wealth and may well be best known for co-hosting the property couch podcast with my old small screen co-host bryce holdaway he's passionate about educating investors and also bringing them together so that they can have a more powerful voice i should say bring us together thanks for joining us today ben we really think this is an important topic
2: thanks for having me
1: but I mean, it's a very interesting topic. Investors are, are always the first person who gets shot whenever the property market's rising. At the moment, they are um, sort of got to get out of jail free card because they're not the reason property prices are rising so much, but they're sort of growing to be a big part of it and they're going to basically be targeted again as soon as um, they start to become a big part of the market. So why do you think uh, Picker is so important and why did you set it up in the first place?
2: yeah, so a quick backstory there is that I was the chair of the Property Professionals of Australia, so the Pipper association and and work with that board. Now, that um, board is really about sort of bringing all the best of the industry together um, under an industry association umbrella. But I but during that time it was really clear to me that consumers didn't also have a voice in this place. So it's really nice that you have a professional association who have a code of conduct, but there was nothing for the actual investor. so, the brainwave was to, um, with Pippa's uh, support I should say, we set up the Property Investors Council of Australia. Now, again, the idea was sort of around this voice for the property investors. So run by property investors for the benefit of property investors. So we set up a, a charter and it's really important for, for people to understand. It's a not-for-profit. Um, we all sort of volunteer our time and we have you know, over 3,500 members um, in the association. And all we're doing is basically trying to to make sure, as Veronica said there, was to to ensure we have a voice. So our charter reads, um, advocate on behalf of property investors. Number two, play an active role in educating property investors and those looking to invest. Three, engage with government regulators and the community to ensure that property investors receive appropriate representation in matters which directly or indirectly impact them. Number four was engage with the government, industry and business to ensure that property investors' uh, consumer consumer rights are protected and free from dishonest, deceptive or misleading conduct in light of the industry being unregulated. And number five was help inform and promote the financial and social benefits of a vibrant and sustainable property investment marketplace. So they're the sort of, that's our charter. um, And our job is to, uh, to work not only at a national level and a federal level, but also through our state councils to also try and advocate through those state councils on, on state-based matters, because we all know that property is a state-related matter, not necessarily a federal matter. So, I mean, I guess, did a lot of this
1: uh, coincide with when property investors were going to get shot dramatically with the negative gearing and the capital gains changes that Labor were proposing at the last election?
2: I think that's definitely one of the catalysts for us. Um, there was, there's was, there been some big decisions at the federal government level, even depreciation, um, mm. travel benefits and those types of things. So we'll talk more about that. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the idea was that um, we, the, 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 the politics of the day suggests that um, property investors, uh, they aren't coordinated, they aren't organised. So if we put some policy out there that's potentially gonna have a negative impact on them, how would it impact us from a voting point of view? And so that was always the, so we obviously need to organize ourselves. Um, You know, we represent over 2.2 million property investors out there. So if we could coordinate ourselves, we would Mm -hmm. obviously have reach and impact as part of that. So as far as we're concerned, we have obviously our paid members, but we are representing those 2.2 million voters out there who <laughs> basically and, and, you know, certainly the negative gearing story was one of those where we were very active in working not only with our real estate association friends, but also um, PIPA for that matter. And, and we were, yeah, obviously, whilst I was away, uh, I've recently been on a trip, um, we were successful in the Labor Party removing their policies on negative gearing and capital gains for now. We don't know what's coming into the future. There will always be tension in that mm. space, but the policy that they had clearly was not a good policy um, in terms of creating a sustainable marketplace and it was going to have a negative impact on property prices. So, But we don't really need to go there. We need to say thank you, Labor, for listening, that you didn't take that same policy to a third election because yep. um, it would have also been problematic for you, I would have thought.
0: One of my questions for you, Ben, was going to be, why is there a need for property investors to band together? And you've just answered it beautifully, mm. <laughs> preemptively. And certainly, you know, we were we interviewed you last time back in, I think it was episode 36 or something, quite a long time ago, which was all about this negative gearing issue. And one of the things that really, really got under my skin at that time uh, about the the policies that Labor were going to, to uh, the election with particularly with negative gearing, was the misuse of data, the misuse of statistics. And, you know, if anyone hasn't remembered, I'll I'll give you just two. One was that they came out saying that only 18% of people in the lower Income, income bracket brackets, so yeah. are, are earning up to $80,000 only 18% of those actually use negative gearing however what they failed to say was that 80% of the people using negative gearing actually were in that that price in that uh, income bracket and it's like it was so convenient to try to 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 really put Property investors as being fat cats that are that are really skimming, you know, the profits of, of or making property unaffordable and really getting an unfair leg up the property ladder and and really that that just lacking that honesty to actually be truthful about who's actually uh using get or getting the most benefits out of it the other one that used to really drive me nuts was chris bowen in particular always saying why should some fat cat get their sixth or seventh property um and he's like well less than three percent property investors own more than five properties and it's like you know and i know that P- picker are talking about you know really harnessing more data and 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 getting more of a um or using that as more of a platform, right? And so I'm really keen to know what's in store there because Mm. that was just a key example about how it's really poor use of statistics to actually pigeonhole investors as all being privileged.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, you know, a lot of people prefer bricks and mortar as a long-term safe investment to supplement their retirement. And, And that's clearly evident in, you know, obviously the data that's showing, that most people only own one or two properties um, outside of their principal home, and w- w- tr- from my point of view, when when governments governments look short term versus longer term, right. So if we think about um, negative gearing as an example, negative gearing as a strategy is a really dumb idea. So running a property as a loss, so so you <laughs> yes. can pay less tax, is a really silly idea but so is a silly idea of buying a house with a million dollar mortgage um, if the value of that house doesn't continually to keep growing. Because ultimately over 15, 20 years mm. or even 30 years, depending on how long it takes to pay that loan off, you're paying another million dollars in interest or beyond. So, so part of me sort of says, when I'm investing in property, I'm investing for the long term, just as um, you know the government wants us to start new businesses and employ people. Um, we get uh, incentives or or offsets to do that. So, you know, when we run a business, we can claim some of our expenses for tax deductions. And so that's what general property investors get. But the the idea when you are controlling an asset um, where you're also potentially leveraged is that over the longer period of time, that property will start to produce a passive income and that passive income will eventually turn positive, which means that ultimately we will be paying the government additional taxes. Mm. And if we choose to sell that um, when we get towards retirement, then ultimately the capital gains, which would be a significant amount of money, even with a 50% uh, exemption that currently applies, there is literally hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars that are flowing into the coffers of government over that longer period of time. So it's very easy for for politicians who are ill-informed to think that they're just looking at the short term and they're looking at the negative impact on, on um, income receipts for, for the governments of the day to basically provide the services that they do. Now the latest data that came out to the end of the 1819 tax year, um, it's getting even closer to the net uh, of negative gearing is becoming less and less. and that's just a product of lower interest rates mm. and the lower cost of money. So yep. so we'll get very close. I mean and remember that data' is 18 months old. So, if you actually were to look probably at today, there's more and more yep. markets where properties are neutrally geared. Um, and if you're holding that property for five to seven years, as opposed to probably it used to be in the, in the very basic modelling, it used to take around nine to ten years for, for properties to turn positively geared. Um, that's that's going to be material. So, so mm. I, I take the view that property investors absolutely contribute an enormous amount of tax revenue to the government's But to start with, we actually get a little leg up to help us on our way, but that's also not factoring in the pension that we are no longer going to be eligible for because of the assets means test. So, we are going to self-fund our retirement. We are not necessarily going to be a burden on the taxpayer when we retire because we've got this wealth base. So, it's got to be a longer term win, and, and I would encourage Treasury and governments to do that modelling to basically say to themselves, rather than, oh, we're negative $12 billion a year from negative gearing, and that's going down, to say, actually, over the long term, these guys pay their way, including land taxes, you know, <laughs> including all of the taxes that we pay Um, And we're doing an essential need in terms of providing accommodation for those people who are transient, those people who are potentially looking to new locations to to test the waters if they want to live there, and longer term people who need essential accommodation, which the governments have also walked away from in terms of social um, housing as part of that.
1: I mean, a big one you sort of missed out as well, Ben, was really if they go and buy a new property, right? Um, and the amount of money the state government, the federal government, the local councils make um, initially just by buying that property um, uh, in society. So with Picker, do you have like an invest, because the property market is unregulated, do you see yourselves also as an educator of property investors on what potentially is going to get them a better result than if they follow traditional paths where they've gone and bought new property or you know, assets that you would know aren't the greatest um, long-term result for them?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, one of the things, you know, we're a broad church and there are a lot of people who um, invest in property for different reasons. And some who, yes, even though I say negative gearing is a bad idea, um, some of the advice that they might be receiving is to buy a property to reduce their tax so um, as part of that sort of broad church we're not we don't necessarily sit here and advocate that off the plan isn't necessarily a great investment we say just look at the data um, look at the long-term performances of those types of things there's, there's some good data out there showing the performance between you know existing and, and new um, which does show that new outperforms but again um, it depends on those types of things so so PIPA which basically is the industry association for the people who operate in an unregulated environment they as i said operate under a strict code of conduct where you know full disclosure should be part of the work that they're doing from our point of view it's like um some people are accidental property investors where they've Mm. they've bought a house and then they've upgraded and then they've just just turned rather than selling that property they've turned that property into an investment property so for those types of people and, and i suspect that would be you know anecdotally 20 30 percent of accidental property investors who, who, who come out of that side and even during this pandemic where we're definitely anecdotally seeing uh, people buying a second home or a third home in a regional or, or beachside location or a, a, what would I call an escape location where they're going into state where, where they think that you know they could outrun pandemics and lockdowns um, that's that's going to be part that has been part of this program that, that we are, are definitely seeing and coming back to your point Chris, about um, the, the mix of buyers at the moment. We definitely know that at the moment it's being led by upgraders um, and owner occupiers. But now that the, um, the first home buyers are falling away because of the incentives are have been signed off on and now that build program comes, we are seeing a real pickup in investor activity at the moment. And, and of course, you know, we, we are, if that continues and price growth continues at the pace in which it is growing, Um, we're probably going to see some macroprudential interference in the marketplace. So what are the main things that um,
1: PICA as an organisation is sort of putting on the to-do list or the checklist of what we really want to lobby government on that we think is not really fair um or sustainable always going to encourage more investors to enter the market um because we've got a rental crisis just as much as we've got a housing affordability Mm. price crisis Mm. and to create better rental market you need to create more rental supply which is more investors and so um it's a real catch-22 so what are you working on at the moment at picker that we um we need to be aware of
2: well there's there's a lot going on in several different states i'll start firstly with obviously the federal government so the, the the big one there is we felt that the the measures around travelling to to visit your property that let's say you, you know you've got a half a million dollar asset state. it doesn't make sense that I can't go in and inspect that property because it's owned in my personal name and claim some of those reasonable deductions for my cost of travelling to there as well as obviously depreciation um, was the other one that the Morrison and, and Liberal governments introduced. We're, We've found that those um, sort of equity measures, I think they called them something along those lines, to be overdone. So I think it is only fair that if I own a half a million dollar asset in another state, um, I should be able to claim the cost of going to that. Now, I think you can put a cap on that. There's no doubt that there might have been some people who were going to Queensland, having a two-week holiday and trying to claim the whole lot as a deduction. That's ridiculous. Um, so... Let's say you know you put a $1,000 dollar cap on going into state to inspect your property. Um, that that would be one of them. The other one, obviously with uh, depreciation, is that we don't think it's fair that an oven that's four days old from the previous owner, when you buy that property, that you can't, you know basically write mm-hmm. off the fair use of that oven or the fair use of some of that equipment. I think that you know that in itself um, is not necessarily. When the irony is if I buy this property, in a company, I can actually do all of those. So it's just a it just highlights the indifference between the mum and dad investor versus the corporate investor. And you know another mm-hmm. good example of that is uh, build to rent. You know we're starting to see um, governments uh, in different states. And and I and I I back the idea of providing affordable housing, but w- what gets me annoyed here is the 2.2 million investors who are also helping to provide supply. Um, we don't get the, uh, the the land tax exemptions for 40 mm. years. We don't necessarily get the incentives for us to do that heavy lifting, whereas we've actually done an enormous amount of that heavy lifting um, when it comes to providing uh, rental accommodation. That said, that's the federal level. On the state level, the main, there's, there's one big thing going on in New South Wales at the moment around the stamp duty reform. So um, what we do there is, We coordinate, um, and we've had meetings with government and Treasury of New South Wales to put our case forward about our concerns and lack of transparency around some of the disclosures. In other words, we still don't know what the rates are going to be for trusts. Um, They still haven't fully disclosed those. So, So our job there is to just basically advocate on behalf of our constituents in New South Wales, and also people like me who own property in New South Wales but live in other states, so we're advocating heavily on that. And in the other states, the big issue at the moment is also the rental reform um, mm. that we're seeing going on. So Queensland is currently active in finalising their position on rental reform, and tenancy reform, and as, as is Western Australia. Now, we saw the disaster that was Victoria's policy. Um, unfortunately, it really has meant that, um, that the, the owner of the asset is now probably considered not in control of their asset anymore mm. um, with the removal of the 120 day no clause uh, notice uh, for, for vacation.' That's, a, that's really problematic now. Fortunately, we did lobby um, in New South Wales and that one didn't get up. Um, the pet rental changes and a few other things and some of the stuff we support right we don't we don't want you know any landlord to be a slum lord. Right. Mm. You know, do the right thing by your tenant. They are they are an asset to you. They look after your property. They get they get quiet enjoyment of that asset. And it's our job to make sure that they do that by ensuring that it's safe and easy to live in and it accommodates them comfortably. Um so, so they're the challenges we've got. You know, obviously um, Labour governments in Queensland and Western Australia are looking at what's happened in Victoria um, and they're proposing similar types of reforms and fortunately as i said new south wales didn't didn't go down that path and i just find that that's quite a challenging uh, policy for for those people who and let's face it so, sometimes you just have tenants um, where you just you're just not on the same page right yeah. and and it's just not working for either party but to not being able to move them out unless you're forced to sell the property is just not in the best interest of the owner of the asset so From my point of view, I just find that 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 particular law was was an overreach and we'd like to also see that, you know, retracted in future um, when we do continue to lobby in the Victorian market.
0: How, with regards to this, particularly the state legislation that's going around the country as you're talking about um, for tenancy, improving tenancy rights, and as you say, there's... There's two sides of this, but they're they're not always o- opposing. There's a lot of overlapping. It's good yeah. to have good tenants. It's good to support long tenure. You know, it's good to it's good to create all that security, um, but not at the expense of the flexibility um, as the person taking all the risks to fundamentally to to borrow and buy the property and and own it and maintain it, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Are you actively now being sought to for consultation at this sort of policy formation stage now, or or you sort of got to find the opportunities and go in there like rats up drain pipes?
2: Uh, we still have to knock on doors. Um, you know, so uh, there's a, a new property forum that's just been set up by the ATO that we've been invited to. so there's a there's a meeting um, of those you know sort of le- industry leaders tomorrow. so there's a there's a a, a national meeting there, so we've we've got a seat at that table. So, in some cases, because we, we've only been around for a few years, um, we're not necessarily a known quantity by some. Um, so, But that's that's on us and, and obviously on, on the community of listeners that you guys have through this great podcast that, to, to basically get on board, right? Because, again, if we don't have size and scale, um, they are just going to walk all over mm. us. So, so, we need to make sure that, you know, for, for example the tenancy associations in every state and territory and and please don't get me wrong here there is a need for them um, because you know some landlords do the wrong thing it's that classic case of that five percent or two percent on both sides who basically means that we regulate to the lowest common denominator and we have all this over regulation Mm -hmm. because basically a small group of people on either side are doing the wrong thing and i can i can give you horror examples of landlords but i can also give you just as many many disgraceful um, mm. examples of tenants um, who are, are blatantly ripping off um, their landlords, especially during this pandemic in Victoria. There's a certain um, uh, opportunity that some tenants have discovered, and I'm not gonna publicly announce it because if more and more tenants knew about this, um, they potentially could be ripping off their landlords. So we're, work- we're trying to work with government, but you look at the Andrews government is a bit chaotic at the moment it's a bit unorganized in terms and so we haven't seen the necessary reform yet we saw the other states move quickly to stop this little loophole um that that has occurred so it's examples like that 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 really annoy me because again we have this regulation coming back to your question veronica around why do we need to go to such extremes to get you know when the vast majority of relationships are 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 a win-win And you know tenants and landlords are Mm. getting on with things in a a really comfortable way, but they get they get millions and millions of dollars every year from state governments um, to run these tenancy associations. So they have they have lobbyists. They're producing reports. They're constantly being able to put their view across the eyes of the politicians, and that's how these reforms take shape. So we need to. Obviously, build ourselves up to a size and scale. And again, we're all volunteers here um, to be able to, you know, produce those reports, produce that, those insights, and and being able to lobby um, to get those uh, get those changes or get our position known. We um, we did an interview with Brett Evans.
1: I'm not sure if it's gone live yet, but it's an expat uh, financial advisor, and he was doing a lot of lobbying for expats, which is a growing part of the property investment market. Um, Together with first home buyers, you know, they might not be buying homes, but they're buying investment properties because mm. the house is unaffordable. Um, you know, they've only got limited assets and borrowing capacity. And so these are two markets that, um, you know, aren't really got the feet on the ground um, and have been around for a long time. But they spoke around, he spoke around lobbying for expats around a lot of the, uh, primary price of residence exemptions that just all got pushed through parliament um, and they did all this work and then parliament just went ahead with sort of what they were planning is that sort of what your experience is ben when you're dealing with you know the government that even though you're doing lobbying it's not going to get sort of heard unless you get
2: a significant number of sort of people part of pickup. look i'd like to think that some politicians can listen um, and I'd also like to think that the Treasury and, and the people sort of behind those politicians will also have a listening ear. Um, so they're the people that I'm more interested in talking to in terms of the people who set policy and, and, and are sort of designing the models behind the scenes. So, so I'll, I'd never say never, Chris, but I also know that the political clout has is, is got to do with basically you know pleasing the majority Um, where you can because at the end of the day they all want to stay in power so again if you know if we turned around with our two million voters and we could communicate to those two million voters you would be amazed um, in terms of how how much uh, attention we would get um, Mm -hmm. you know in in terms of doing Mm -hmm. that yeah i mean it's a really challenging sort of
1: Conversation, isn't it? Because their their interests are sometimes not in line with your interests, right? And you're sort of banging your head against the wall because, um, you know, you just haven't got enough power, right?
2: Mm. So there's a federal affordability um, inquiry that's commenced, and and effectively, you know, they're looking at solutions here, and and I think what's interesting um, about the approach is that they're really looking at the supply side, um, and in terms of what can be done on that, and I and I don't disagree with them around if we want to it's very difficult to control property prices when you've got cheap money and you've got no supply and you've got high demand um, so, so I think that is a, as a good idea to be basically focusing in on and coming back to your point before Chris about the costs you know the Housing Industry Association has produced report after report talking about um, the cost of the first time a house has been owned subdivided land and a house is being built as being between 30 to 41 percent of the cost of that property is in taxes mm. and infrastructure costs and those types of things, so so that would be a good reason to you know to be highlighting because I don't think the the broader community understands um, that when a developer subdivides and don't get me wrong they make lots of money when they do those subdivisions, but um, an l- enormous amount of that cost is actually in and getting that house out of the, out of the ground and the infrastructure that goes in around that. And they're asking the developers which ultimately pass on those costs to the consumer in buying that property.
0: We interviewed Michelle Adair recently about the whole housing affordability and supply of long-term rentals, et cetera, et cetera, issue. It's a massive issue, very complicated issue, and obviously uh, a policy nightmare for governments. And particularly, as you mentioned earlier, that governments have been increasingly short-term in their thinking, as it seems, and, of course, this is a big-picture, long-term thinking uh, uh, or problem, right? Yes. And needs to be tackled. The policy needs to be addressed in that way. But, you know, because back to sort of the, the way the government uses investors in many ways is actually as pawns. You know, to stimulate and first home buyers for that matter, to stimulate the construction industry, and so then you'd say there's all these taxes that are involved, and we've discussed this before. At at each layer of government, there's there's so many taxes involved uh, in that whole development process, and of course that gets laid into the price of the property. And then we also do know there's a lot of data around. You mentioned earlier about the the resale prices of new properties. You know, the amount of losses that are incurred by those first buyers. Mm-hmm. So you've got a situation where these people, in all their hopefulness of becoming investors, of becoming first home buyers, are actually thrown into the mix um, and really pawns uh, in terms of our economy in this country and and then left to suffer the consequences individually. And yeah, look, it's right. an issue, it's a massive issue and obviously if we're not if that's not being tackled or, or brave enough to be addressed at policy level, it's just going to continue.
2: Yes, look we've got a situation where 60% of our economy is made up of consumption and so when you know a safe bet for any federal um political party is to go go quick and go households and what they do there in terms of stimulating that because every dollar that goes into property there's a ten dollar um lift in terms of spend for the economy so you know that's direct and indirect as well and obviously it's I think it's the third biggest employer in Australia so so you can understand why governments who are looking to, to increase uh, uh, employment and, and get the economy moving uh, do go towards households but the, the consequences of such are that you're going to obviously increase the demand and you're going to increase prices um, as part of that story so it's a. It is delicate. It, there's not. There's no easy answer to housing affordability. Um, I think you'll find it will ultimately be a combination of of things that need to happen in conjunction with each other and over a longer period of time. If you're going to have any success in terms of providing um, affordable uh, rental accommodation and, and affordable housing, um, we also need to set the uh, set an honest conversation with people around what their expectations are around what they're going to be able to get to, right? So I could buy a home um, that might be a two-bedroom unit um, as an entry-level property for for still under $300,000 in some parts of our major centres. So, But but no, no, if I want a house and I want that house in a really great location, that's the differentiation that we need to sort of um, make sure we define because everyone, I mean, if, it, if someone says, "Oh, you know, Ben, you could have a house in Mossman and you can overlook the harbour and, you know, you can have it for $300,000, um, <laughs> everyone would look at me and say, that's ridiculous. You're being ridiculous. Well, that's where we, we do need to make that separation in terms of housing expectation versus housing affordability. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to be rude about that. I'm just basically saying, look, the, a lot of the um, housing affordability surveys are basically... Um, Expectation surveys of what the next generation believe they should be, they should have access to, and and I think you know whilst I appreciate it, it's very difficult from a deposit point of view, and it's not easy to get into that. You could find similar stories post war, uh, post Second World War through the 60s of the building boom and the Great Australian Dream. This story was in the 70s and the 80s, and and continues to this day in the 2000s. Right, so so I think that that's an important message. Um that we need to to also convey to people that that those things are are going to be um, you know part of the part of the the policy uh, positioning that needs to happen if we're going to have any chance of solving housing affordability.
0: theelephantintheroom.com.au. So <laughs> it's, it's funny you say that because the reality is, like you say, if you made it all cheaper and all more affordable, then the demand will basically take care yeah. of that in the next minute. You know, it's all good; it's market forces take over. So it, yeah. it, it, that's just another level of complexity. And the, and the governments, and you know, I've heard governments on all sides basically saying, well, both sides, I should say, saying, look, supply is the answer. We need build more, and then that'll solve the problem. It doesn't actually solve the problem.
2: No, I mean, it. it look, housing the 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 whole 53 percent of the wealth in in this country is built on our housing stock right so nine trillion dollars now um it's too big to fail so so the the reality is and and we come back to that example we used earlier about if i borrow a million dollars and i buy a house for a million, you know for a million um the last thing i want is in 20 years time for that house to be worth a million when it's cost me two um so appreciation um, needs to occur because if if i then as a generation see that basically there's no appreciation in houses then effectively you know there's a risk of a run on values of property and you know the whole thing implodes and we only need to look at you know not too you know not too distant past where we did see um, housing markets of the us of ireland of greenland of all of these centers where they basically, they they were um, led by cheap lending and, and you know, huge, crazy, um, irrational optimization and we had property bubbles. And it destroys the fabric of the economy. It destroys the whole lending system. And so it is too big to fail in this country. We've got to acknowledge that whilst also potentially looking at policy decisions that will allow for, um, you know, sort of more stock. And, you know, we're seeing... Right now in the US and the UK, uh, they're introducing reforms around planning. And I've been an advocate for this for a long time. But basically we have a lot of planning regulation in, in, in all states and territories, which restrict the amount of houses that can be built in certain streets. Mm. And my my view is how you can potentially change that is you, you introduce what I call a ratio. And the ratio means that for every street, there can be one subdivided block into two duplexes. Okay, so it's going, to, it's going to reduce the cost of the land, which is ultimately going to reduce the cost of the price of the house. So we are going to, this, this will be part of the suite of reforms that need to be introduced to basically make housing more affordable. And you will see some more duplexes and some more, you know, um, you know brown sites being yep. rejuvenated into more accommodation. It's just the fact that not in my backyard right you know we, we have this uh, we have this problem but if you have a rule that says okay it's one percent of properties along each street or or road or something like that you'll start to you know it won't be everyone knocking their homes over yep. you won't you won't change the dynamic of the area now you would tweak that over 20 to 50 or 100 years where you might move it to five percent or something along those lines but that's that's one of the ideas that you've got to start thinking about to basically allow for people to want to build something that they can live in and we're getting better and better at building more compact houses um, still with two living zones and still with two bathrooms and, and still the amenity of the backyard and so forth so again it's just one of the ideas that could uh, could play out over the course of the next decade.
0: So my so, brain immediately goes to, okay, so once the 1% percent's taken up, you've got one block left in the suburb and what does that, what happens to the price of that? <laughs>
2: well, it, it obviously goes up, right, because it's yeah. a scarcer asset. But, mm. but the, the point being is if you've got, a say, a street of, of 50 houses and only one of those, ha- and once that street's done, that's it, it's one mm. and done, right, and then the next street has to get their one and then the next street, ha- so because if you introduce a policy whereby it's, um you know, 10% along this street, and it'll just be too much too quickly. And yep. so, again, you're still trying to make sure that those townhouses are a 30% reduction on the freestanding full, you know, freestanding homes. But that's, again, one of the policy ideas that the UK are now looking at um, as part of their solution mm. because, you know, they don't have as much land as what we do. Mm. But they also know that, you know, greenfield areas are very expensive to develop. Uh, mm. and, and governments are looking now, you know, here in Victoria, the state government um, is whacked an additional uh, tax on developers for, for, you know, subdividing or, or, or change of land use, rezoning. Mm. They're, they're, they're doing a land grab, a, a cash grab there. So this, again, just flow that, and that'll just flow on to the buyer. Ultimately, of course it'll it will. be put into the profitability and the margins of what the developers make. So it's, it's costing us at the end of the day as consumers. So, so, Ben, I mean, I guess you mentioned at the start that there could be
1: some uh, intervention, I guess, into the property market uh, from government regulators to slow down the market. And maybe investors will be the first ones they target because they're an easy one to target, right? Because yep. uh, we want 1st home buyers. We don't mind people upgrading, um, you know, because that's great for, you know, it's houses, it's not investors. But what do you think they're going to potentially look to target them with? Because, you know, interest-only loans was the first thing they really targeted you know, back in 2014 because they were out of control. You know, half of loans were going yeah. on interest only. It's not only an issue for the individual, but it's an in- issue for the whole economy if they mm. don't start paying these loans back. But, you know, they're one in 10 loans or one in eight loans right now. So, that's not an issue. Investors are still, um, the loan growth still very slow, nowhere near like it was, you know, um, in the past. So, what are you sort of things, you know, from the investor side that they need to be aware of that they could start to target, you um, you know, coming up.
2: Look, I mean, the, the Reserve Bank of Australia um, have learned very, very well about the signalling that they put into the market. So I think it was probably 15 years ago where the, the Reserve Bank started to be a little bit more public in terms of their <laughs> announcements and and basically what they were projecting into the marketplace. And and they use that as an instrument to also potentially control the financial markets and give some direction and so forth. What we saw with APRA, with a macroprudential interference in the marketplace with, first of all, as you say, speed humps, growing loan books by greater than 10% for investors, for interest only, we, we did see that more broadly work. So, so the perception now in the marketplace and potentially throughout the business community and, and even the investor community, that if APRA signals that they're going to make a change, um, then technically they're going to watch what happens to, to to the psychology of the buyer. And so I'm I'm hoping that they won't need to do the same measures that they introduced last time. But just that signaling alone could hopefully then dampen the level of demand and interest from investors. Um, not all investors, but but I suspect the ones who are thinking this is a quick kill and property's easy and everyone makes money out of property. So They may introduce something like that, that that throttle on loan book growth for investors that that, that can't be more than 10% uh, month on month. Um, And just that could just be enough to basically take the the momentum and we'll see that showing up in the sentiment surveys and, and those types of things. So because we knew it worked, it absolutely, it took the demand completely out of the marketplace for investors in 2018. Um, as everyone started to understand basically mm. what was going on and all of the fear mongering that went with that around switching from interest only to P&I and, and there was going to be a, this sort of fiscal cliffs in households and everyone wasn't going to be able to afford to make those repayments. Well, we knew that that was a load of rubbish, but it, it had its intended purpose in terms of scaring the market. So mm. so I'd like to think that if they have an interest in in this particular space, that we get that scaring of the market first before we actually get the implementation, um, which is effectively, you know, that interference.
0: But do you think we forget? I mean, you know, all of that wasn't, it's recent history, we all know it because we live and breathe property, we're in this day in, day out. But, you know, new investors, for instance, wouldn't really probably be paying any attention. Um, Existing investors, will they now in this face of rising prices and FOMO and all the rest of it, do you think that they, Forget that. That's a possibility.
2: Yes, I mean some some would, but I mean, hopefully you're not going out and spending half a million dollars or a million dollars without doing some due diligence and 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 asking for some professional advice would be my you know recommendation to people. And people have got to understand that um, you know um, we are in a state of a FOMO. And so we're trying to move that sort of fear of missing out into a more sustainable marketplace. But we also can blame a bit of the, you know, eyeball media in terms of the clickbait. Hmm. You know, there's no longer are we in a boring property market. We're either in boom or bust. Hmm. Um, so, so I think from that point of view, and I think coming back to your question, Chris, one of the things I think is their biggest instrument is probably around um, the, you know, the floor rate or the assessment rates that, that they get the banks to use. I suspect that they will they will taper borrowing power, um, which will hit a ceiling for, for, for the vast majority of people who might be stretching themselves. Um, I think from a loan-to-value ratio point of view in terms of what New Zealand and all that are doing, I'm not sure that would work here, um, but I also am very conscious of people who are trying to get their third or fourth investment property on a 95% loan-to-value ratio. I think that that um, is just, is you, you know, you're on a flogging to nowhere there if you want to risk the whole you know, house of cards falling over through, through greed. So mm-hmm. it is just about balancing that out. And I think mortgage brokers will be where they go to in terms of because a lot of mortgage brokers um, are becoming reasonably educated in terms of the property market. Um, so hopefully that education will flow through and, and that distribution channel will slow a little bit of that sort of FOMO and irrational buying behaviour that we're seeing
0: that's a hard one though isn't it because let's face it and you know Chris is a mortgage broker and yeah, and, and, so and, and we, I yeah. yeah and I advocate that people use brokers rather than go directly to banks yep but there is a conflict of interest there isn't it because let's face it you get paid a, a trailing commission um, on the loans you write and um, and so, how how can how many brokers honestly do you think actually recommend that their clients don't borrow the maximum? I mean, do we have any data on that?
2: I, I don't uh, look. The only anecdotal assessment you could do of that is the the percentage of uh, borrowers in arrears as a as a the channel. So, if you mm. did mortgages Good versus point. so mortgages versus direct channel, um, you would probably understand what that looks like now. In most cases, and, and this is, you know, again, they're going after the investor rather than the homeowner because politically that's more palatable. Um, mm. But what, what, we do, what we do know, um, in, 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 and it's very clear in the data, that most of the people who are in arrears are usually owner-occupiers. And it's the owner-occupiers who normally stretch themselves more than the investor does because they've got an emotional invested interest in that property. I mean, a, a, a classic story... That I, you know, I broke I broke it for years, for, for over a decade. Um, first home buyers would come in and sit down with you and they'd say, oh, you know, we've got a budget of 550. Oh, great, fantastic, okay, we'll get that sorted out for you. And then they'd go and have a look at properties worth 550 and realize, wait a minute, those properties, even though they're being advertised for 550, sell for 610 or 630. And so they're knocking back on your door, basically saying, can we have a reach? Because then they go and have a look at the five hundred and fifty properties. But they're like mentally, they visualise themselves in the better home. Mm. The, you know, it's like going to a, a car dealership and you, you know, you see the basic version and you see the souped up version. And you had a, you had a plan when you walked in there, but that plan's now out the door. And and so that's that's where responsible lending um, and you know a lot of the, the adequate inquiries that are being made around affordability and so forth. And because uh, I'm a huge fan of brokers, don't get me wrong. I think their knowledge as a specialised um, industry operator compared to, say, the banks, um, it's ch- chalk and cheese, absolutely mm. chalk and cheese. And and the ability to be able to s- find a lending solution compared to a one-person a one person operator who has a fixed or a variable or a line of credit product to offer, um, it basically is the reason why brokers are now, you know, pushing a, a well above 60% of all home loans being written. So, so Ben, I mean, I guess the...
1: I like guess the big worry for investors right now is let's say you've got a couple of properties, even really if it's just one property, right? And it is at a high LVR because um, maybe you're a 1st home buyer that couldn't buy a house and just bought an yeah. uh, investment property somewhere and you've got a 90% loan, right? The worry is that, uh, you know, some legislation could come in late this year and they could say, look, you know, you can't refinance that loan because it's an investment property because it's over 80%. You know, they could easily implement that that say all properties that are investments have to have an LVR under 80%. And so what sort of pick are doing in terms of who are you trying to speak to in terms of getting on the front foot when these type of legislations come out where it's a great, it's a simple policy for new property, um, no mm. new investors, but existing investors could be smashed. So is it APRA that you need to be speaking to for this? Is it the local member of parliament? And who do you go to with these sort of uh, when the when the I get the shit hits the fan, I guess.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, it is APRA. At the end of the day, their their, their mandate is um, a a very strong and robust and safe uh, lending environment. So they are the ones who basically have the levers to pull. Um, look, I give credit to APRA in terms of you know when when APRA came out with their with their idea, the, the you know the story was the Reserve Bank didn't believe it would work. Um, but it obviously did in terms of tapering demand. Um, I'm of the view that um, they would be... The data that they're getting now from the, from the major banks or the ADIs, actually all ADIs, is very sophisticated data now. They've had, mm. they've had sort of five or six years to be able to organise their data suites. And I suspect something like that is an example where you cannot refinance um, a loan... Um, when you've got an existing property because you want to get a cheaper rate. Um, that that basically, I, I can't see them in, introducing a policy like that. And I'll, I'll give an example. Um, so under the Smurfs, self-managed super funds lending, um, refinancing was was quite difficult earlier on because um, obviously you can't release equity when you're buying a self-managed super fund product. But in this particular case, um, we are now seeing the, the ability to refinance from one self-managed super fund lender to another, when because you know we, we knew that there was lots of lenders out there that collapsed after the royal commission, so there's not a lot of lenders out there, and they are gouging. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the interest rates you're paying on your self-managed super fund loans. So we are starting to see some more of those refinances starting to go through. So, mm-hmm. so I would like to think that that APRA is it can use that as an example for themselves in terms of um, they don't want to see any consumer. Uh, who has a problem with repayment being restricted or penalized by their lender it's more than new business new lending new yeah. money's coming into the system that i think they'll go after chris
0: that that's interesting you say that ben because i actually had a client that was impacted like that they they the way that they sort of structured their business and there was a divorce and there was a few sort of messy things that went on, they meant for a period of time they didn't have and they're in business for themselves and so they had a, a period of time where they had um, tax returns that showed a loss and all that sort of stuff yet they had a really good property portfolio and they were stuck at, one particular property was stuck at a really high interest rate because just because of the structuring of mm. it and when they went to the bank, the bank said, well, you won't qualify for that loan now even though they'd been repaying it, all the time, they never miss a payment, you won't requalify for it, we can't refinance it. And they wanted to upgrade their home and it, the whole thing had to get put on hold for two years so that they could actually then resubmit um, tax returns. And in the whole time, they were then paying a higher amount of interest than they could have been and so supposedly responsible lending saying, oh, no, we wouldn't lend you that money again, but you already have lent me that money and and I can't actually get access to a lower interest rate now because of the responsible lending changes. So I've heard of, I mean, that was one client I'm thinking no, on in no, particular. No, no, they're
2: everywhere. Chris, you've got, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> prolific, right? I mean, yeah. the reality is all new customers at banks are probably paying you know 40 to 60 basis points than what customers even a year or two years ago were paying you know and so if you haven't refinanced or gone to your bank in the last two years um you know you're paying 40 or 50 percent you know basis points more expensive and a lot of those people can't refinance right maybe they've gone on maternity leave or maybe you know they've swapped jobs and they had a big commission impact or maybe they've gone casual or they've cut their hours and they go back to the bank asking for better pricing, and then the bank says, "Hang on a sec." They can see that maybe you're not going to be able to leave. You know, they can see what's coming in, and mm-hmm. some banks do do pricing based on the risk of you leaving. Um, and so, absolutely, they're taking advantage of those customers because they're saying, "Well, we got you in on a great rate at the time. That's no longer a great rate, so we're going to make money off you." And all these new customers who are going to qualify, we're going to give them a better rate. So there's a loyalty tax that's massive, um, and, and even bigger at the non-banks, which were pretty prolific a couple of years ago as a percentage of the mortgage market um, and they charge higher rates but they also know that if you you know get you on board it's harder for you to refinance and so um, the idea is you'll always be able to refinance in the future but they know that it's unlikely you're going to be able to do that so um, yeah it's a big issue.
2: It is and I think it, it's well highlighted a lot of Veronica I know of many many cases. I think pre-APRA is coming in and basically putting these um, sort of floor rates and and the speed limits on assessment rates and so forth there's five years of that legacy that has definitely flown you know flowed through and P and I switching over and and those types of things where you you simply can't borrow the money that you used to be able to borrow i mean yeah you know chris and i go back to low docs and no docs and Mm. you know and and you know the differential between lender A and lender D was $300,000 on the same yeah. accessible income. Those numbers have creeped in a little bit. That's been tightened, so you don't necessarily have that. But I, I say to, I mean, obviously in that situation, they hadn't planned for a divorce, they hadn't planned for all of the other elements of it, but it, it just goes to show you that when you sit down with a, a great broker and and you, you get to see the pros and cons of what's going on and you understand that you know this is a moment in time, and you are doing your cash flow modelling and you're doing all of those things to to factor in some of those variables, um, that's what you've got to understand. And and from an investor's point of view, there's always risk, right? So if you Mm. think you can come into investing in property and you think that there's no risk, we've just highlighted some of the risks right then and there. So I think a well-informed investor needs to understand there's a risk and there's a cost of doing business. And if you understand that cost of doing business, and you still see the upside being greater than that, you'll make a calculated decision on what LVR you land at, and then basically what price you buy at, and ultimately you know what returns you receive. but on a uh, individual property, so let's say I'm a picker member, right,
1: and yep. uh, I've got an apartment. Let's just say Little Bay in Sydney, and it might uh, you know merits on a. Um, proposing a massive development out that way right and it doesn't really fit in with the local landscape it's a lot of apartments it's high rises where you got houses right um and a lot of if i was an investor of a property there i'd be very upset with this because it's just a proliferation of supply that's going to affect the. um and so do you do sort of campaigning on an individual sort of Like level, not an individual, but a community level, let's call it, where you think that um, property investors are getting disadvantaged by ill-informed, you know, council action. I guess where they're rezoning. You know, there's parts of Melbourne, for example, where it's just not fair zoning. You know, you've got houses and then you've completely changed it to high rises, and um, that's affecting investors, affecting the houses, etc. So. Are you getting involved with that, or are you sort of saying, no, no, we'll just get involved at the top end, not
2: on the on the ground floor? So, so what we do is we have some fundamental webinars um, that we produce. Veronica's uh, produced a webinar, and we have those on demand uh, for our members of the association, right? So it's five dollars to join for a year, or twenty dollars for five years, right? So it's Basically, a cup of coffee. Cheapest chips. Cheapest chips, and you know we run on the smell of an oily rag because of it. Because we we really you know basically again all volunteer our time. So if you were to watch three or four of those webinars from some industry experts, you would learn relatively quickly um, about some of the risks associated with oversupply and and potential you know sort of rezonings that occur in those particular locations and. And that's what you've got to be, you know, Woolite Creek is another good example near the airport there. When you do know that there's going to be a significant arrival of phase one, phase two, phase three, that there will be a period of time where that there will be oversupply and property prices will be affected. And then if you look 20, 30, 40 years on from that, eventually the market will um, settle itself down and and you'll basically, you know, sort of move back to a probably an appreciating a trajectory. So, we, we can't probably fight for each individual investor we, we do get people reaching out to us with as i said some shocking stories like i mm. found out about that loophole in victoria through one of our members reaching out to us and saying here's my story and it was just omg like i could not believe what this particular tenant was doing and um you know so we took we took that to the lawyers to see whether we could get anything done there. Um, so we can encourage people to then speak to the industry representatives in that particular space. But the reality is at the moment, Chris, we're not big enough yet. We need yeah. to get bigger. And then when we when we build out our state councils and then those area representatives and we do, you know, pre pre-COVID we were doing meetups and people were basically sharing their stories. Again, we're run by property investors for property investors. We're not the industry um, association where we're basically getting mum and dads to sit down in an RSL and have a bit of a chat about what's going on, you know, what's working for them, what's not working for them, um, and, and just share that knowledge and then make yeah. your own informed decision as opposed to, you know, if, if someone was to listen to me for the first time, I want them to have a healthy level of scepticism. I want them, you know, if, I'm, if you're coming to my business, I want you to have a healthy level of scepticism because, you know, at the end of the day, I earn money from you engaging us to do some work. So yep. so, so I always say to anyone, if you're going to invest, there are risks, um, and also make sure about the people that you're dealing with, how are they paid, um, what are the commission structures, um, what track record have they got, and um, what reviews have they got. All of those things will help inform you in terms of that. Coming back to your question about, yes, particular pockets of subdivision and, and those type of things, we, we just don't have the reach to get yep. into, you know, into the local council and go and pick at them or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I think so it's good on will...
2: an in, individual level just to be able to share your story,
1: right? Just get it off your chest. Share it with an organisation that can share it with their members. and Yes. Um, and other people can't make those mistakes, right? Because hopefully through sharing or learning that knowledge, you don't go and follow that, which perfect segue, to be honest, into our Dumbo of the Week. Um <laughs> Ben, have you got one for us, you know, a story that we can all learn from?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think I've got a well-documented story, but I'm, I'm happy to share it. Like, I think I've shared it quite a bit, but not everyone's heard it. But I'm, I'm about $700,000 in the red from a decision that I made. Um, I bought my first property when I was 23 across the road from mum and dad. I was a novice, obviously a rookie, not knowing what I was doing. I paid $120,000 for this property in, uh, in Bundura. Um, that property now could probably attract a 900 to a million dollar price point. Um, it's had some renovations done to it since then. But I sold that uh, for 165000 some four or five years after I bought that because I got some tax advice. And that tax advice said, <laughs> this, pos- this property is positively geared. I was living in Sydney at the time. This property is positively geared. So you need to sell that property. You need to s- <laughs> You need to sell that property and go and buy ready for it an off-the-plan apartment in Zetlands at the time, right? This no. was when Zetlands was being developed down in Park, And so I've gone, all right, well, you're the expert. I'll go mm. off and, you know, so I went and put put a $1,000 deposit down with my little red dot on the apartment that I picked, right? Yep. And then, I, and then <laughs> something didn't feel right to me, right? I started to do some reading and some investigation. So I called off, got my $1,000 back, but I still sold the Melbourne property, right? And so... All I needed to do was renovate the kitchen and the bathroom and that property would now be in the portfolio adding to a beautiful passive income that, that my family and I can enjoy for our future future endeavours and, and, you know, sort of quiet enjoyment. So that's a perfect example and, I, I you know, I'm dealing with uh, a couple of clients at the moment where they're thinking about selling one of their properties because of their uncertain circumstances. So... Work isn't necessarily strong for them at the moment, yeah. but they do have a buffer. But they're seeing their bank account just basically going backwards, and they're a classic case of a loan going from interest only to P and I. And so it, it, this is where mindset is so powerful when you control money versus it controls you. So I, so I've, I, I had we had a long conversation last night after, as I said, I've been away for a couple of months, and I just sort of said to them, look, whilst I appreciate what's going on, as your accountability partner, I care. But I'm not going to care to the level that you guys want irrational thinking and irrational behavior to, to take hold. So we agreed that because I'd already, by the time I found out, that already got an agent engaged and so forth. So I said this, for this to happen, it needs to sell at the absolute top end of the range. And if it doesn't, the 90 day exclusive that you've got, you're cooling off and we're going to put a tenant in there. And I promise you, because I don't want you to be in the same, I don't want you telling a story like I just did, where you reflect on the property that you sold a decade or two decades ago and that money coming in and and being part of your nest egg. So that's my Dumbo. I'm pointing the the light bulb straight on me (laughs) in terms of being the Dumbo for selling that property.
0: Uh, Well, actually, it's funny because both Megan and I share our own um, Dumbo stories a lot actually on the your first home Buyer guide podcast mm. um, because of exactly that it's like I actually went calculated and I think conservatively if I hadn't I, I racked up what some of the mistakes that I've made along the way and I think there's a definitely a million dollars um, oh. that I don't have that I could have had had oh. <laughs> I had I made better decisions but also had I got better advice and yeah. sometimes had mm. I acted on the advice sometimes actually had I had better better advice um, so it's yeah cautionary tales for sure. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> Thanks for sharing that with us, Ben. Nice. Now, we're going to put the link in the show notes to Picker, and we encourage you to join. Um, even if you're thinking about becoming an investor, you're not actually a property investor at the moment. Um, because, like, let's face it, 20 bucks for five years or 5 bucks a year, it, you know, it's worthwhile. Because I think it's so important that we do join our voices together. And, you know, you, I think we're in good hands with Ben and the board. Um, in terms of what they're advocating for. So thanks for coming on and sort of running us through that, Ben. I think that that's been a great chat.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a good chat, Ben. I guess um, it's gonna be interesting what happens in the next twelve months as well because you can very you can already start to see it. We're seeing it with clients um, you know, that have uh, got a property and they're saying even this morning one email said, Oh, you know, I would like to talk to Chris about some investment, you know, what we can do, you know, borrowing capacity in there, you know, low rates are encouraging them to mm-hmm. they're doing well on their current property that's got a yeah. bit of equity now. Um, strong incomes and so they're starting to think, prop- investors always come to the party late, they did in 2017 Yeah, they'll do it again this year um, they're always the, the sheep and so they're going to be very, uh, I think they're going to be targeted pretty hard I think by the end of this year so good luck with all your um, campaigning there because I think you'll need it with the, uh, <laughs> the way government work. <laughs> Thanks Chris Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again.
0: And remember, don't be a dumbo.